0: Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. Today is a bonus episode. It's just me and I am here with Daniel Palkin, who is a conservative outreach fellow at Citizens Climate Lobby. He is also a PhD physics student at the University of Colorado Boulder and the chapter co-leader of the Boulder CCL group. Thanks for being here, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me, Ross. Indeed. Thanks for helping us get in touch. And Daniel, you've been doing some very interesting work with the Citizens Climate Lobby, and we're going to get into all of that. But maybe to set the stage, how exactly did you get involved in this type of activism? And what is a conservative outreach fellow? How do you spend your time, essentially?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I got into this space in 2017 at the, the urging of one of my friends. I was looking for something political to do, honestly. I felt that I really liked my physics research. I look for dark matter. And I found it very intellectually fulfilling, but I didn't feel like it was satisfying my desire to do something that that helped people in the here and now. And my friend Lindsay talked me into coming to a Citizens Climate Lobby meeting. It's a grassroots organization that does, does outreach across the political spectrum and has a reputation for being very bipartisanly effective which is not easy to come across frankly in the climate space when i went to the the first meeting i was i was pretty instantly sold i got into this group and i found i could engage in politics in a way where it really resonated with my my intuitions about what what i wanted my political engagement to look like it was a very thoughtful and reasoned mode of political engagement which nonetheless allowed for for an adamancy on the issues that I cared about on the on the issue, particularly of climate change, and, and that did it in a respectful way that has had meaningful, tangible success, bringing conservatives into the space. So I, I actually, from somewhat early on in my time in CCL, I've always felt as are more comfortable in the climate space, which I think is somewhat unusual in this area, talking with conservatives, I, I feel a lot of the where where conservatives are coming from, when it comes to kind of the cultural grievances that exist that, that inform the, the, unfortunately, the climate discussion in our country. And I, I, I felt I was able to talk to that and have constructive conversations. I am myself kind of all over the political spectrum, I, I don't fit easily into one camp or the other but i started working with with groups i was already involved with i started working i've since started working with college republican groups and county republican groups in bringing in key conservative stakeholders into productive climate conversations around around in our case carbon pricing policy
0: wow well kudos sounds like you're at least making some degree of progress and i'm i'm happy just those conversations are being had at least then people know exactly what is being proposed, what is being said. It isn't just some distant people and given that the internet works this way, you really unless you're like a part of a community, you only hear the nastiest thing that various groups say if you're not in the mix. That's just what gets reported, you know. Mm. If it bleeds it leads that whole thing. So uh that's good. I yeah. think what you're doing is important and also just not as a I always compare this this sort of outreach thing to conservatives with climate change. There's have you seen that Sasha Baron Cohen show? Who is America?
1: I have, yes. Yeah,
0: I mm-hmm. always think of it like the the healing the divide, where the progressive guy just it goes and tells people how how horrible they are in the most awkward way possible. Uh, that's what I. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's like the bad faith version of what you're trying to do. So I like when there's a good faith <laughs> version of it. Or yeah. I think I think it's probably more successful. Yeah, that way I, think, I think
1: his parody is actually spot on there. I think there actually is a bit of that that happens in our, our real climate conversation, and you know, Citizens Climate Lobby is trying to infuse a, a deeper level of thoughtfulness and in, in how people engage. You know, whether whether with with people far to the left of them, or far to the right of them, or, or where they are, just trying to meet people where they are on the political spectrum.
0: Indeed, yeah, meeting people where they are is is uh you know I think a pretty good strategy for for doing so. Even just like. One of the goals I have for this podcast is trying to. I don't always agree with everyone who comes on or everything that they say, but I try to interpret it charitably, talk to everyone like they're a human, uh, you know, not browbeat them too, <laughs> too hard, even if that might be a, a fun, rewarding thing to do personally. So I don't know. I think, I think that's the way to go. I, I like to think it matters. If it doesn't, I've been wasting my time. Please tell me I haven't been wasting my time, Daniel. <laughs>
1: I don't think you've been wasting your time. I think it's it's not easy work to create a space where, you know, anger can fuel a lot of politics in the the short term. And I think this is not really climate specific so much as, as specific to US politics in the current moment. But a lot of our politics seems to me to be fueled off of from, from coming from the right and the left, anger at the other side, all too often, rather than a positive vision of of the future. And I think, you know, there's there's not right now a big market in the clickbaity world that we live in for positive visions of the future that don't seek out villains and, and monsters and boogeymen. But I think it's it's nonetheless possible to, to create that vision because I think that vision has real merit. And I think people respond to that when they listen to it enough and when it comes at them from enough angles. Uh and so I think your work in this space is is not a waste of time in the least. <laughs>
0: Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to have the reassurance. And it sounds like you are not merely speaking with people in uh, your community. You're also involved with some of the big projects that CCL has going on. Like I saw that there was a conservative lobby day and there's a bill that Citizens Climate Lobby appears co-authored or maybe even just authored themselves and has been trying to get passed um, at the federal level. So what all is happening with CCL and your work out there in DC?
1: Yeah. So I live in Boulder, Colorado, but I travel to D.C. somewhat regularly uh, for my work in Citizens Climate Lobby. And I'll first I'll first talk about what that looks like and then talk about, like you mentioned, the bill uh, that we're that we're fighting for right now. So Citizens Climate Lobby, as the name suggests, is an organization based on the idea of citizen lobbying. I think we we think of the lobbying space all too often as a space reserved for, you know, the high-powered lobbyists, somebody who can make a lot of promises and has a lot of money behind him or her and, and goes into these offices and is, you know, it's unfortunate that this is... Our kind of canonical image for thinking about our right to petition our government, it's much more natural in my mind and a much better concept to think of the lobbying space as a space that exists for well-organized groups of citizens to talk to their congressmen who are who after all they're paying the salaries of who work for them to go to washington dc and so i, I view myself as a as an ultra low powered lobbyist but <laughs> a low powered lobbyist with a lot of other ultra low powered lobbyists at my side and in what we lack in you know financial clout or anything like that we make up for in numbers and in sincerity and the fact that we are the constituents often of the, the people we are lobbying. So on our recent conservative lobby day, this was a first of a kind event for us. We've had a lot of lobby days for Citizens Climate Lobby dating back about a decade or, or more. And the conservative lobby day, you know, we run a bipartisan organization and the, ma- the critical mass of conservatives in our organization kind of hit the point recently where we felt that it was appropriate to, to fly everybody down to DC, let people connect from across the country, feel that community in person of people who, you know, don't fit into the stereotypical left of center space where, where you want climate action, but are in a center or right of center or libertarian space where you nonetheless see climate as a, as a very high priority issue. And then from there, we go into congressional offices, we meet with staff, we've developed really terrific relationships. With these offices. So at this point, in our organization's history, we really when we go into an office, we often get the legislative director, we often get the top energy aid, sometimes we get the representative or senator him or herself, we sit down and we have these meetings, they often we place a kind of prime value on the role of constituents. In these meetings. So we'll often have several people from in district in these meetings, and we all have roles in the meetings. They're very well organized and well thought out in advance. But we build in a nimbleness and flexibility because the congressional office often wants to take the conversation in a different direction, maybe wants to disagree with us or have a healthy skepticism about the policy we're pitching. And so having, you know, we have a lot of trainings for our volunteers who go into these spaces, but the best training is actually doing it. So by the, you know, your first lobby meeting is is frankly a terrifying experience. You're, you know, if if you're anyone like me, you haven't been in the halls of power before you go into Congress. It's a, these are kind of intimidating, imposing buildings with with all their old style architecture and their marble. And you you go in and you're in an office and you can barely speak. And by the 10th time you do this, you're firmly in the mindset that these people do work for you and that you're here to have you're here to kind of jump into the important meat of the issue and to really have a policy conversation and a politics conversation about where we are and where we can go on policy. So so that's the first half of the answer to your your two-part question. The other part was about the specific legislation that we're doing all this lobbying on behalf of. So it was it was for the longest time a proposal that we called carbon fee and dividend. It consists of placing a price on the extraction of fossil fuels and that price will get passed along throughout the supply chain ultimately in large part to consumers and will but also you know through businesses and through corporations companies and will at every stage of the supply chain, at every stage of the economy, disincentivize the use of fossil fuels to precisely the degree that they put greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So so what I mean by that is coal, for example, emits more CO2 when burned than does natural gas or then does petroleum. And so it gets taxed at a slightly higher rate per kilowatt hour of energy that you extract from it. That price that we then collect into a fund uh, with the treasury, instead of using it for a government program or anything like that, we take the money and we give it straight back to the American citizens is what we call a carbon dividend. And this simultaneously answers the biggest concern that progressives have about carbon taxes and the biggest concern that conservatives have about carbon taxes. Progressives feel that carbon taxes are regressive because they are. They, they hurt poorer people fractionally more than richer people. Well, the dividend actually reverses that paradigm because the dividend is more progressive than the tax itself is regressive. Conversely, conservatives feel that a carbon tax is just a a liberal ploy to grow government all too often. It's a way of raising money for a government that they don't want to grow anymore and ensuring that the the fund is revenue neutral and that the money goes back to citizens rather than being used for the enlargement of government meets conservatives where they are and says okay we hear that concern and the financial mechanism itself is the way we we reduce greenhouse gases and the money doesn't go into growing government this sort of policy by the way is not something we came up with the idea has been around for a while it was it was kind of come about from bill nordhaus a recent nobel prize winning economist and on that note, the the economics community is very much behind this proposal in particular. There was a letter in the Wall Street Journal where 3,500 economists, including I think 27 or so Nobel laureates, every former living chairman of the Fed, uh, virtually every former living chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors to the president said a carbon fee and dividend proposal like ours is not only an effective approach, but the most cost effective approach. To reducing emissions in this country, so it's a it's a powerful plan. It's well vetted. It's supported by a number of conservative and liberal thought leaders and stakeholders. But it's not it's not something that gets a ton of media play. So it's something that we have to do our own advertising for and build up a knowledge and awareness of in in constituencies in the population.
0: So is this bill the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act? Is it so, so in the legislative process? I imagine that there are competing bills that are not taking the same fee and dividend approach. There are some that are just carbon taxes. There's other approaches that are more comprehensive, like the Green New Deal and various bills uh, related to that entire paradigm. Where does it fall in and uh, how is the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Acts prospects right now relative to its competitors?
1: Yeah, so great question. I should have, I should have myself also mentioned that this, this bill, since being kind of conceived of as a carbon fee and dividend proposal, when it was introduced in the House and Senate in the Congress of 2018, is called the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. It's, it's currently just in the House as HR 763 is the bill number if people want to look it up there. There are a lot of other carbon pricing proposals floating around right now. There's the Market Choice Act, which has multiple Republican co-sponsors on it. Ours has a Republican co-sponsor in Francis Rooney of Florida as well. There's other proposals that have been put forth by Rooney. There's a bill in the the Senate that was put forth by, by Senator Chris Coons, which currently has Democrats, and they're looking for Republicans to add on to this. It's a, it's a space where there are a lot of Republicans kind of on the margin in thinking about these, these pieces of legislation. But to talk about, you know, where this bill stands relative to the others. I've heard the feedback from congressional offices when we go in and say, are you interested in kind of us giving our perspective on comparing and contrasting the different carbon pricing bills? Because they really have different strengths and weaknesses. A lot of offices will say, no, we're interested in hearing about your bill. Your bill is the one with 70 something co-sponsors. The others have like five. And this is because CCL has thrown its full weight behind this bill. Talk to congressional offices, ask them to co-sponsor it, got in key endorsements on it from members of the committees that it's in. So the bill is currently in three committees in the House. It's in foreign affairs, ways and means, and energy and commerce. And it probably won't move out of those committees until we see progress on it. In the Senate for, for historical reasons, frankly, uh, there, there was the Waxman-Markey cap and trade bill in 2010, which got kind of ahead of itself in the House before there was a real companion in the Senate. And one of the historical lessons learned from that is to to kind of march these bills slightly better in lockstep. And that's probably where the house is thinking on on this sort of proposal is right now. It compares, you know, the the other carbon taxes, they they certainly tax carbon at different rates. Ours tends to be a little steeper than most, but not all of the others. They do different things with the money. So some of them fund use it for infrastructure projects. One of them uses it in a in a kind of tax swap, I believe, to reduce income taxes. So there's there's different things for conservatives and and more liberal people to like when it comes to to how you assess and what you do with the money from these various carbon pricing bills you know in the broader space of climate policy climate policy really falls into three categories there's the category that this bill exists in which is pricing which is the government kind of does the bare minimum thing it puts a price signal in place by saying we're going to apply a tax to like a thousand or so entities coal mines oil and gas refineries etc and we're going to let the the market signal and let mar- let the market signal come into existence and let let markets do what they do and, and foster that innovation and drive a transition, but be technology agnostic. So whichever technology reduces carbon the best in this this view of markets is the one that, that will come out on top. Conversely, there are proposals that seek more to uh, work through government funding. So the government identifies technologies that it views as promising and gives them funds to develop. This, this is actually interesting, interestingly an approach that Republicans have shown a significantly enhanced level of interest in, in the past, I'm going to say like two months. This is, this is actually quite new. Minority Leader McCarthy has uh, helped put forth a, su- a suite of bills for 2020. Some of which are are being applauded by by the climate community, but which aren't enough, frankly, in my view. These these bills. Address the problem around the edges. Uh, I think of them as, you know, each addressing something on the order of 1% of the problem. And they're kind of speculative because some of the technologies are a long way off. Nonetheless, it's worth, it's worth congratulating progress where progress is made. And I think this is a meaningful step. But, you know, subsidization of this sort is, is viewed by economists as being often a less effective kind of per dollar, how many tons of CO2 do you reduce? means of, of emissions reductions than pricing. The third approach, which tends to be much more on the liberal side is regulation. Uh, so, you know, the advantage or, or disadvantage, depending on your perspective of regulation is that it can be done through the executive more often, uh, you can also, of course, have, have regulation passed into law throughout the legislature. Citizens Climate Lobby has the view that uh, having the legislature involved is very essential for for politically sustainable legislation, because we need legislation that isn't just turned over as one administration transitions into the next. Uh, we need administration that that has some measure of bipartisan agreement and that also has been passed into law, and that it would take a significant amount of energy and effort to to repeal. So we can send that signal to companies that, hey, this is here to stay, time to start adapting.
0: Great, that's all very useful information. And leads me into this next question, which is, what do you think is the cause of the climate logjam? What's it going to take to break it? And I imagine it's at least partially reaching out to independent voters, conservative voters, libertarian voters, or people who are just somewhat centrist who may not be fully on board for some of what uh, the left is proposing? Uh, is that wrong? Is it not complicated enough? Uh, what's it going to take to get some movement?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of nuance, I think, to, to be had in this space. And, and, and we should be careful not to oversimplify what it will take. It's not it's not simply the case that, you know, All we need to do is engage conservatives, you know, liberals, many liberals have been flag bearers for this issue for a long time, and we're seeing a real uptick in the energy on the the left and the center left around climate change. And the key is to channel that energy in a way which which keeps driving the conversation forward. But you know, there are studies in the the social psychology literature which show that the the type of tactics of that are kind of used in more radical protest movements are actually, as we observe, quite good at getting large numbers of people energized and into the movement, but they're also polarizing as a downside. And so often the same tactics that draw more people in from the left can be alienating to people on the right. And, and, you know, people should, people should practice their politics in line with their convictions and, and what they feel they need to do. So, so I'm not here to, to necessarily to criticize or anything like that. I'm here to say that it's very important to be cognizant of kind of the, the, uh, effects, both intended and unintended of our political actions in the climate space. So, so one ingredient, I think you're right to point out that it's going to take to, to move the needle on the climate conversation in the short and in the long term is the engagement of conservatives. And, you know, that that's everyone from from people who are just, you know, closer to the center, to libertarian minded folk, to moderate conservatives, to even Trump Republicans, to really create a space where people across the political spectrum feel that climate is an issue they can get behind. And and I say this because the the threat is big enough to warrant uh, you know, we, we would in no other situation, you know, no other external threat the size of climate change would we ever believe can be handled by half of America with the other half not being on board at all uh it, it would it would have been utter nonsense in in world war 2 to say okay we're going to you know fight the nazis with only half of our people really at all in, invested in even doing this so in in my mind and in my view and in you know i could cite a number of other studies that talk about the history of legislation in this country and what what historically does and doesn't work in the the trends of of partisanship versus bipartisanship when it comes to, to these issues. But suffice it to say that there's real historical evidence that movements this big struggle a lot when they fail to, to create a bipartisan space. And so certainly bringing conservatives into the conversation is that key ingredient. And, you know, it's thought of as, as perhaps a very daunting or, or hard task to do this. And in some sense, maybe, but I think there's a, there's a misconception among the public about where the the actual beliefs of a lot of conservatives are when it comes to climate it turns out that when polled the a strong majority of americans including a majority of conservatives see climate as an issue that is that is worth doing something about. Now, the the what to do about it question uh, differs from right to left in meaningful ways, but it's it's not the case that the kind of very vocal minority we see saying, you know, this isn't an issue, man didn't cause it. That's actually not the the dominant thinking. Just that that people are are, are voicing when when asked about this issue right of center and it's important you know the, the question is why aren't we seeing that part of the right take a, a larger and more prominent role well because the culture doesn't provide that narrative that it's actually it is it is very much in line with conservative values I mean conservative even at, at its root has con- conserve in the name we want to conserve the things that are, are good about where our society is and how we've gotten here and one of the things that's good is, is the clean air we have the clean water we have and the, the livable climate we have and so, so again, it, it's it's kind of the creation of a space is always the phrase I use for conservatives to rally around this issue, articulate the solutions that conservatives see as the most effective, and then champion those solutions in a way that that is empowering. Hmm.
0: And one advantage I've seen that the left currently has in driving so much of the momentum around climate change is that they have... A vision of the future, and I'm thinking of that video that was Naomi Klein and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made, um, the drawn one, um, that's imagining what a future looks Mm -hmm. like after the Green New Deal. And then, of course, simultaneously looking into the future with a vision of what a transformed America and world looks like. There's also this harkening back to a lot of what is idealized in in the past here, like like the like the New Deal itself, sort of has a very uh, rosy reputation, at least among some circles in the United States. Or they use the language of the Marshall Plan, which was uh, seemingly a lot more bipartisan and wasn't nearly as uh, divisive as the New Deal itself was. But I don't see much of that from the right at all. It seems like much of the many of the plays that are coming out of the right are reactive. To the left, they don't seem like they have a very strong vision of what this future world looks like. Does it look very different? Is anything being changed? Uh, how do we get there? It's the ambition shown is also seemingly much less. Than the left has, which even if you think the ambition is is misplaced or wrongheaded, or or foolish, it, it at least exists. But I don't see a lot of that from the right. Do you think this characterization is is correct? Are there parts of it that are correct? Is the right working to ameliorate my perception here?
1: I, I take your point, and I, I I think you're you know that that's a a valid and and to some degree fair point in the context of of the climate conversation that the right has not articulated you know with exceptions there are there are major players on the right James Baker George Schultz former secretaries of state under HW Bush and Reagan are, are are big exceptions to this several several members of Congress currently but have not articulated a vision which competes with with you know in the in the public perception sometimes the vision of the left around climate solutions and this is you know I I view this as a real missed opportunity. For the right because the right has its own ideas in this space uh what i like to say is that we often forget that the best climate solutions are really right of center they're these these market-based solutions which which take advantage which tap into america's innovative potential to bring down emissions and if you want to see the the people beginning to voice that positive vision in a in a public in the public sphere and see what that looks like i encourage listeners to look up the group students for carbon dividends specifically students for carbon dividends has a youtube channel in which they just have some videos which i mean you'll watch them and if there's a part of you that that feels uh, you know deeply patriotic and also deeply wants to combat climate it'll send shivers down your spine uh i would i would recommend just kind of they're all like one to to 3 minute videos and they they feature various climate champions of the right articulating their vision for what a a better and brighter future looks like uh, when we take advantage of the strengths of markets to to address climate change. I should also say a word about who students for carbon dividends are. They're another group uh, that I work closely with. They're a group of, of uh, mostly young, well, of course, students, conservatives who are in the climate space and very much want market driven solutions, they endorse the exact same framework under which citizens climate lobbies policy falls a carbon price, a dividend, and then several other elements of the policy, which are also important. And there's over 50 college Republican chapters that are signed in to this coalition. There's also a dozen or so college Democrat chapters. So it's it's a bipartisan group. And there's in college, environmental chapters and business and economics groups at colleges are also part of this this broad coalition, and they're articulating a market driven vision of a future that that looks amazing and is compelling. And when you you know, I, I think I think it's a fair point that that the left has taken climate and tied its solution to the solution of other issues, which they they view as as some of the most salient issues America faces. And I see the logic and the reason behind that. Uh, what I always say is that Citizens Climate Lobby is doing something that's that's not actually, you know, too different from that. It's just it doesn't it doesn't pick political sides when it does this. It, it's Citizens Climate Lobby is tying are solving climate change to our solving our our political division issue, we're using climate as a bridge issue to remind Americans that we actually have a lot of common ground because we're championing a solution that gets meaningful bipartisan support. And that when people, everyday people on the left and right hear about it, the most common response is a is a response of gratitude and happiness that this is this is now part of the conversation. So whereas whereas one approach is to tie climate to kind of other tangible political issues of, of the day that have tangible policy solutions what citizens climate lobby is doing is we're tying solving climate change to in in a way fixing our democracy from the inside out from the the cultural aspects of it by by reuniting america around a more prosperous vision for the future
0: well nicely done i mean i asked that was a pretty pointed question so good job holding your own i guess daniel <laughs> Uh yeah, I would like to see see more vision. I listened to a political climate podcast episode with David Roberts from Vox the other day. And this question came up and paraphrasing here, his answer to it was that it's because the right actually doesn't have a vision for for what is happening and what they want to happen and it hasn't been articulated yet. I was wondering like maybe maybe that's what it is or maybe it's just too early to say. I'm not sure. I hope to, you know, whether or not I end up ultimately agreeing with it or not, I would like to see that being put on the table where it does feel a little bit haphazard now. And it sounds like that's part of what you're trying to do in engaging these people and getting these uh, bills passed, which hopefully has something for everyone to like or to dislike. That's also the downside of something like that, too, (laughs) that bill
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I, you know, I know your podcast is somewhat unique in the climate space for having a, a constituency of uh, a listenership. I, I just use the word constituency as if I'm in some political office, having a listenership of, of, of some, you know, Republican, libertarian, independent listeners. And so, you know, if you're a person that, that agrees with that David Roberts diagnosis, And you fear that the right doesn't have a vision uh, right now that it's clearly articulating on on climate change. uh, You know, don't just stand on the sidelines and say, well, too bad about it. You know, help. Uh, We, you know, organizations like Citizens Climate Lobby are equipped to empower people who want to help create a space for that vision. Uh, because that vision is, is a key ingredient in what's going to dig us out of the climate hole we're in. It's, it's really, it's the first law of holes. When you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. And uh, listeners can help with that
0: great i think that is a good thing for them to do and just for the record i'm not sure to what degree our audience does reflect a membership in republican party or, or being conservatives or libertarians I, I imagine there are some primarily because we've we've had people on who do share those beliefs and we've been uh fair to them or what i like to think is is fair to them like we try to treat everyone that way if you yeah, are that was there, my like hope the, in,
1: in saying that. Maybe maybe it's just all liberals listening, but it could uh, be. in the hopes that <laughs> that your your guest list has has churned out some meaningful audience in that space, I hope I'm reaching those people.
0: And me too. I, I think they probably are out there. And mostly what I've heard is people saying like, like, oh, thank you. I didn't know that you could be a conservative or a libertarian and care about the environment. This was such an interesting episode. Or Or I get messages from people who identify as independent. I'm trying to remember if I've seen much of that. I think they are out there just because there's not a lot of political or not political a lot of climate podcasts who do what we do. Although Political Climate is a good example of trying to be bipartisan or transpartisan in a really thorough going way. But yeah, anyways, this is sort of a bonus content at at the end here. If someone did want to join you in creating this vision for the right of center or independence uh, moderates, people who are not necessarily uh, fully sold on the the left and center left's vision of the Green New Deal, they want to help you with this, how should they do so?
1: Well, I should also say, you know, before I give the the short answer of how you can find us to that question, Citizens Climate Lobby is also a real space for the left. Uh the whole point of this organization is we're a space that takes people where they are in the political spectrum and creates a a truly not just nominally but a truly, you know, uh unifying environment. And and this is a challenge. It's something that's perpetually a challenge for us. But but a lot of our members, you know, more of them than not actually are, are left of center. Uh, and so, you know, if you find yourself on the left, if you're a supporter of a Green New Deal, but you view carbon pricing as an ingredient in how we reduce emissions, there's, there's also a big space in Citizens Climate Lobby for you. I just happen to work on the right half of our organization. Uh, so you can find us at cclusa.org. Um, you can read about our bill at energyinnovationact.org. Uh, you can also follow me if you like on Twitter at Daniel Palkin. So I encourage listeners to, to go onto cclusa.org and find the nearest chapter to them because we have over 550 chapters worldwide, most of them in the US and Canada. But I think new chapters have recently opened up in the past year or so in, in Pakistan and Nigeria, uh, all over the world, really. Uh, and I'm amazed to see that because it's, it's not just a United States organization. And so if, you know, listeners find, you know, if you're in the United States, chances are there's a chapter near you. I encourage you to find that chapter, go to the meeting, wherever you are in the political spectrum and find, you know, find that personal empowerment to engage the your the community you live in and the, the people that represent you in Washington on the issue of climate, if it's important to you.
0: Great. Thank you for correcting me. I, I don't think I featured that element of citizens climate lobby nearly strongly enough so thank you it isn't just for people who agree with broadly the topics that we've discussed today it's for people who Mm want to work together on climate policy across the aisle is that a better way of saying it
1: yeah yeah. it's a it's a broad space for people who want to work uh particularly across the aisle from whatever side of the aisle you're on or or the center
0: Great. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for telling us about all of your work. I hope uh, you are successful in reaching more conservatives and libertarians, independents, people that we don't really hear from in uh, the climate world nearly as much as I think we should.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much, Ross. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you. And if you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher. Send this to a friend who might be in the audience that we've just discussed. Uh, maybe they'll like it. Maybe they'll really dive into climate change and, uh,